Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is about the 2002 documentary To Be and To Have. It's directed by Nicolas Philibert and it focuses on a small school in rural France. The teacher is named Georges Lopez. He is such a warm and kind teacher. We get to meet his pupils and the various students in the school. There's about a dozen, maybe a little bit more. This film just captured my heart. I've loved it ever since I saw it a few years ago, and I've really been wanting to talk about it on the podcast. I talk about the documentary, as I always do on Her Head in Films, but this episode is really grounded in my experience with school and the importance that it had in my life and the relationships that I had with different teachers. So it's an episode full of my memories and my emotions, and I hope that it makes you think about your own experience in school and maybe the way that that shaped you or formed you. So just be aware that it's about the film. I I talk in depth about the film, but I also really talk about my relationship with school and how it informed my identity. That's an important thing for me to talk about. And it's just a really personal subject for me. I'm almost 30 years old as I record this episode in 2019. And I've been thinking a lot lately about my childhood. I'm a very nostalgic person, and you'll learn why as you listen to the episode. I'm just sort of obsessed with that time in my life when I was a child, and it's a comfort, those memories for me. And I've been wanting to talk about it in this space. And Her Head in Films is a space where I explore these personal things with you as a listener, but I hope that it inspires you to reflect on your own life, your own memories, and I hope that it inspires you to watch this beautiful film that is about a teacher and his love for his students and his relationship with his students. It's just one of the best documentaries I've ever seen, and I hope that you watch it, and I hope that maybe it captures your heart the way that it captured mine, that it moves you the way that it moved me. It's a really special little documentary. I'm really glad to bring you this episode. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the work I'm doing on a monthly basis and you can access rewards and extras like merchandise and extra episodes and much more. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I'd love to give a shout out to some of my patrons. First, I want to welcome a brand new patron, Thomas. Thank you so much. Some of my longtime patrons are Kelsey, Aaron, Max, Tyler, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for your support. I really am grateful for it. If financial support isn't an option for you, and I definitely understand if it isn't, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher, preferably iTunes if that's where you're listening to me. It would mean a lot to me. Please give me five stars. You can tell your friends and your followers about the podcast. 
or you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can find links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. So I will not keep going on and on. Definitely time for me to share this episode. I put a lot of my heart and my emotions into it, and it was sort of a therapeutic and cathartic thing for me to talk about these memories, talk about why school meant so much to me, when I was a child and why this film, because it focuses on childhood and focuses on teachers and focuses on school, why the documentary itself means so much to me. So here we go. This is one of those films that is just so close to my heart. I'm going to be honest before I get into this discussion. I may wander a bit and meander. I just want to share with you my impressions of the film, why I love it, why it means so much to me. I first saw it in 2017. I don't know why I watched it exactly. I love, first of all, I love French cinema. Those of you who have followed me for a while or have listened to a lot of episodes or maybe just know me, I love French cinema. On top of that, I love documentaries about ordinary people. So, for example, Agnes Varda's The Gleaners and I or Marwin Call. That's a really great documentary about an everyday person dealing with trauma. There's this great documentary about a man that does uh, uh, topiaries and garden sculptures called A Man Named Pearl. And that's a wonderful documentary about an everyday person. So this fits in with that, with documentaries about ordinary everyday people. It's in a rural setting. I'm always attracted to films about rural areas because I myself, that's where I come from. That's where I still live. I'm someone very connected to the rural landscape, to the countryside. And so I love films that look at that. This film also looks at working class people, working class children, really. That's the background that they come from. And that's something that attracted me too. I love films about school, about growing up, about children. So there's so much about this film that uh, compelled me to first watch it. And it's a great example of just taking a chance on a film. It seems very simple. You know, this is just a film about children learning. They're in this one schoolhouse in rural France, in Auvergne, which is in central France. And there's this one teacher, Georges Lopez. He's just teaching these kids, and that's what the film's about. But over the course of the film, as you watch it, it becomes about so much more. And that's what I connected to. I immediately connected to these children, connected to the teacher, and it brought up memories of my own life my own experience in school. And I'm going to get into that when I get into my full analysis. But watching this film again, just a couple of years later, it was just as beautiful as I remembered that it was. Like when I first saw this film, I immediately fell in love with it, like head over heels. And audiences did. When this film came out, people absolutely fell in love with it. For this little documentary, it made millions upon millions of dollars at the box office. It was a global sensation. Millions of people ended up seeing it. 
particularly in France. These children in this documentary became like stars and little celebrities. On his website, I read as much as I could about this film and for my research, and Nicolas Philibert, God, I feel ridiculous saying his name. I, I want to do it the right pronunciation, like with the French, but I just feel ridiculous. I feel so pretentious when I say Nicolas Philibert with my little French accent. Forgive me. He said on his website that when the film came out, after it came out, people would actually go to the school or they would go to the village where these kids lived. They wanted to take pictures of them and things like that. This documentary was a really big deal back when it came out in 2002, which really surprised me because when I saw it in 2017, I knew nothing about it. I'd never heard about it. I just hadn't. It seemed like this little obscure gem to me that I got to see and that like nobody talks about. Nobody gives it any kind of love. And so that's why I wanted to cover it on the podcast too, because a big mission of mine through her head in films is not just to talk about the films that you've heard of, you know, not just to talk about the, you know, the Ingmar Bergman films that are famous or all the art house films like The Passion of Joan of Arc and, you know, Cleo from Five to Seven and all of that. Of course, I love talking about those films that people know about and have heard of, but it gives me real pleasure to possibly introduce people to films that they didn't know about, or maybe they had heard of it, but hadn't really given it a chance, haven't watched the film yet. So I hope that through these episodes, I also maybe inspire you to watch some films that you wouldn't normally have seen if you had not come in contact with me, or if you had not listened to this episode. That's important to me. It really is. I love exposing people to films that I think are like little forgotten gems or are just like these little masterpieces that nobody talks about. It's it's very important to me, whether it's this film or a film like Nancy Savaka's Dogfight or, or Maurice Pialas' The Mouth Agape. I think that's an amazing film and I've done an episode about it. I love these little films that maybe get forgotten or people don't give a lot of love to by sometimes obscure filmmakers or or directors that are just not as lauded the way some are. What it comes down to for me is my personal connection to the film. I absolutely fell in love with these children. I fell in love with Jojo and Marie and Julian and Olivier and Natalie and uh, and all of them. I think that they were just wonderful in this film. And I wanted to give a little bit of background information about the documentary before I get into my full discussion of it. Philibert uh, it took him a while to find this school. He visited over a hundred or around a hundred schools. At first, he wanted to make a film about farming and about how farming was changing in France. And then he got an idea that he wanted to look at, at teaching. And so it was sort of organic the way that the film came about. He starts with one subject and he pivots sort of to another. And he contacted 300 schools, physically visited around 100. And he was just on a on a mission trying to search for the right school because there were lots of things that he wanted as his criteria. And he talks about it on his website in some um, articles. He wanted a small class size. 
That was important so that you could connect with each child. If you have a class of 30, people people are not going to connect with 30 kids. So he needed about a dozen maybe. He wanted them to be of different age ranges. He didn't want it to just be kindergartners. And also he wanted it, the classrooms to be set up so that he, the natural light would be really good. And he wouldn't have to bring in a lot of equipment. He only brought in like a few camera people. It's not like they packed the schoolroom with people or anything like that. And so when he came across George Lopez, he just immediately uh, connected to this man, to this teacher. He found all of the things that he was looking for, the small class size, the nice uh, well-lit rooms, the different age ranges, because in Lopez's class, he's got lots of different kids, lots of different ages. You know, from little Jojo and Marie to the older Julian, Natalie, and Olivier. He says that the parents of all these children gave their agreement. And he was very open with them that he may be filming things that were that were difficult. He still respected the children's privacy. He only filmed for about 40 minutes a day, he said. Filming lasted for about 10 weeks. He started in January of 2001 and shot until June 2001. But he was respectful of the children. If he felt like there was a scene that maybe was too intense, he would not film. Or if there were certain children that seemed uncomfortable with the camera, he would not film those children as much. So it was a delicate balance for him to try to get the trust of these kids. He describes what he had to do. A lot of people, when they comment on the film, they're like, how did you, how did you get these kids to open up in front of you? How did you make it so that, you know, they forgot that you were there? And he said, quote, the problem wasn't getting ourselves forgotten. What mattered was getting ourselves accepted. And that's a totally different matter. Trying to get yourself forgotten would be like wanting to film people without them knowing, in secret, to steal something from them. My camera wasn't a surveillance camera. On the contrary, we had had to be there at their side, present in what they were doing, unquote. And I thought that was fascinating. He, he wasn't trying to disappear when he was in the classroom. He was just trying to get the kids to trust him and let them know that if they did open up or whatever happened, they weren't going to exploit it or something like that. I, I feel like the film is respectful. Unfortunately, after the film came out and it became this massive hit, things turned sour <laughs> between the children's families and Lopez. And uh, the children's families ended up suing Philibert. Lopez sued him as well, or sued the production company or something like that. They wanted money. They felt like their lives had been exploited or used. Lopez, the way he says it in interviews, he thought that the film was just going to be like an educational film. He claims that he didn't know that the film was going to be shown in cinemas and that it would be shown all across the world and in different movie theaters. And he also talks about how, you know, he he's this country teacher and he, people expect him to just live on his pension or something like that. And that he did want compensation from it because he felt like he was an integral part of the film and that his life was, you know, on display. He also claimed that Philibert made suggestions and that the film was not totally a documentary. And uh, Philibert is very open 
about the fact that he did make suggestions. He did say, well, why don't you talk about what, talk to Jojo about this? Or why don't you do this? He talked to Lopez about that. So Philly Bear is completely open about that, that he did make suggestions about things that could happen, but he in no way controlled the outcome. He in no way directed these kids or Lopez. What you see happening in front of the camera happened organically and naturally. It is a documentary in that way. Lopez and I think the families too ended up losing their lawsuit. I know Lopez lost because it's just not in keeping with documentary ethics to pay your subjects. It changes the relationship between the docu, the documenter and those who are being documented if you start to pay people who are in a film. And so it would have set probably a bad precedent, honestly. They did, um, either Philly Bear or the production company, they did donate money to the school in Auvergne that was in the film. They did give money to it and they offered money to Lopez, but I think he turned it down. Now, before all the lawsuits, everybody loved the film. The, the children's parents were shown the film before it was ever released, and they loved it. Lopez loved it. The children and Lopez were invited to the premiere of the film in Cannes, and they went and they enjoyed themselves. Uh, for some of these kids, it was the first time they had ever seen the ocean or seen the sea, and so everything seemed okay, but I guess that was before it became this worldwide smash, and I think it's natural. If you're the subject of a documentary that becomes really famous and makes a lot of money, that you feel like, oh, I should get a cut of that. I'm not saying that I don't understand Lopez's or the family's viewpoint because the families were working class as well. And I can see how they would look at that. You know, here's this film that made all this money. I should get some of it. But it's just it's not the way it really works when it comes to documentary filmmaking, as far as I know. But I can understand, like, what if I've thought about this? I'm like, what if somebody wanted to do a documentary about me or wanted to film me or something like that? You know, how would I feel about that? I think what it comes down to is once you allow someone to film your life and to make a documentary about you, I think you have to accept that it's out of your hands and you no longer have control over that narrative. I think we see that play out in reality TV or especially in the early days, like on the real world on MTV. I would remember uh, watching the like reunion shows or when they would catch up with the cast members years later. And the ones who were on the reality TV shows in the 90s, especially like on Real World, they would talk about how they were manipulated by the producers, how the editing made them come off in a way that they were not. What a bad experience it was to be on these reality TV shows. And I'm not saying that this documentary does that or that all documentaries do that, but um, I think back then people weren't quite as savvy about reality TV that when you go in front of a camera, you don't have control over it anymore. And so that's always the delicate balance in a documentary is that the director, you know, the person filming, they kind of have the power. And Philly Bear acknowledges that in some interviews. And he does talk about it. He says, quote, a film imprisons the people that you film in a certain image. 
at a precise moment in their lives, and you have to remember that this image will stick to them, that they won't always be able to rid themselves of it. That's the whole difference between documentary and fiction, unquote. So Philly Bear was incredibly cognizant of his responsibility with this documentary. He goes on to say, quote, it's in the editing that the responsibility really lies. I was showing private lives to the world. Those lives are fragile. The kids have to grow up with these images of them at school. But I did feel they were strong enough to live with the images I used. In fact, the kids, their families, and Lopez were first to see the film and seemed proud of it. The only bad thing is that after it became a hit, tourists would go to the village and hang around to take photos of the kids, which is a bit heavy, unquote. So Philibert was incredibly aware of his responsibility to these kids. And I don't see the film as exploitative. It's showing just these everyday, ordinary lives, you know, things that they're going through. And I love how he's really kind of saying these ordinary lives, these children, which we don't often see on screen in this way, are just as worthy of a subject for a film as anything else. That this too is epic. That going to school and learning and becoming yourself as a child is an important story and it's an interesting story. And he says as much in an interview. He says, uh, you know, some people would question, you know, why would you make a film about this? It's so ordinary. Uh, It's not dramatic enough. It's not, you know, a good subject for a documentary. And he said, quote, but children learning to read, write, and count is not banal. They face big challenges on a daily basis. They're dealing with the unknown, which we all fear. All films are about overcoming problems of some kind. And here, the kids and the teacher have lots of obstacles to surmount. Unquote. And I think I've mentioned this before, but it's an idea that I just really love. This idea that an ordinary life is just as important or interesting as these more epic subjects of war and things like that. And what comes to mind for me is Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway. You know, how she was trying to say that a woman buying flowers, you know, putting together a party, living with her memories, going about her life was just as worthy a subject of literature as war or as anything else. You know, that it too was epic. That every life in some way is epic. I mean, I guess she wasn't explicitly saying that. But she was saying that this life matters too. That a woman's life matters. And I think when it comes to children, you know, their lives can be devalued. Or we can we can just overlook how difficult childhood is and how dramatic it can be and how like formative our lives are at that time when we're in school, when we're young like that and we're so inchoate, you know, and we're becoming ourselves. And that's not easy. That's a painful thing. And, you know, I recently saw the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, about Fred Rogers, you know, Uh, Mr. Rogers, who's so beloved here in the United States in particular. And I cried my eyes out with that film, with that documentary about him. Because whatever you want to say about Mr. Rogers, I don't know how everybody feels about him. I loved him. I did grow up with him. And I tell you, there's something about uh, Mr. Lopez in this 
documentary that reminds me a bit of Mr. Rogers. He, Mr. Rogers wasn't a teacher. He was a personality on PBS, on a PBS show for children. But he was a teacher in a way. He was guiding children through life. He was addressing their fears and their worries. He was encouraging them, being supportive of them. And he believed deeply in the value of children and of being good to children and treating them well and nurturing them and nourishing them and supporting them. And that is something that came through with Mr. Lopez for me, his calmness. how soothing he was, how patient and kind he was to these children. There's just something very beautiful about Mr. Lopez in this film. And Mr. Rogers came off the same way to me. He is someone who just loved children, advocated for children. I don't know, like I wonder nowadays the world that children are growing up in. You know, here in the United States, we have an epidemic with mass school shootings. School in the United States has become like a war zone, a battleground, a place where children, whether they're kindergartners, like they were at Sandy Hook, or teenagers, the way they were at Columbine and Parkland, or even when they were in college, like in Virginia Tech, that these places that used to be a refuge, used to be a safe space for children, for young adults, people coming into themselves, are now filled with fear. You know, I myself was around 10 years old when Columbine happened in 1999, I remember being in fifth grade and I remember that we had a bomb scare at my elementary school and that we had to file out and sit in the grass. I'll never forget us sitting in the grass. That's what children live with now. That's what kids live with. They live with lockdown exercises. And I remember those when I was in school. You know, the siren would go off in the school and the teachers would shut all the doors and lock them and make sure that all of us and make sure we were safe. So we went through these drills just like we'd go through a fire drill or a tornado drill. It's really stunning when you think about it, the way you become numb to it and you just do it because that's what you're told to do. But it's like life doesn't have to be that way. But it is for children nowadays because the gun lobby is so powerful in this country. The NRA is very powerful. The Republican Party is very powerful. And so there's not been any radical or revolutionary policy change on the federal level to keep dangerous people from having weapons of war, like assault rifles and and the like, and semi-automatic weapons. So we're just in a really dark time in that way, I think, where school has become a place of fear. It really has. And kids, when they're in school, they have to think about where are the exits? What if somebody comes on campus and tries to hurt us? And so I, I, I watch to be and to have within that context. I'm out of school. I'm almost 30 years old. I've been in college. I'm out of college. You know, I'm done with that. But I, but there are millions of kids who have to live with that every day. And I myself grew up with it from the time I was 10 years old. School is not the refuge that it once was or that it maybe is for these kids. Of course, in 2001, the world was very different in 2001. This is pre 9-11, really, which I don't know how that impacted France, but I'm just saying this was a film made at a time before the world changed so drastically. 
because what the U.S. does does have ramifications throughout the world. And I know I'm going on a bit of a tangent with that. And uh, but so when you watch the film, it's there is something idyllic about it. I don't think Philly Bear was trying to make an idyllic film about childhood or anything like that. He does show the difficulties of it and the pain of it. It's not about idealizing this rural setting or anything like that. But but for me, there is a sense when I'm watching it of like the world before everything changed, before so much changed, where, you know, these kids could be in this little schoolroom and they could keep the world out as much as possible. So it just takes me back, I think, to that time when I was a child too. It makes me think about when I was in school. And that's the first theme that I really want to touch on with the film is that I think this is why I so deeply connect to it is because I myself loved school and I miss school dearly. Even though we had that sort of specter of violence that was hanging over us in a way after Columbine, school was still a safe space for me. It's hard to explain that contradiction. I would have been in elementary school before Columbine. So, you know, up to fifth grade, that was not a fear that was there for me. And even after Columbine, I still really enjoyed school and I did feel safe in school. I grew up in a rural area. My life was not exactly like the kids in To Be and To Have. I wasn't quite that rural and it's not like we had one school room. I mean, I went to a school where there were, you know, hundreds of kids. I would say each classroom had maybe 20 you know, 20 to 25 kids in it. So it wasn't exactly that personalized, intimate space that Lopez creates. But I still just really loved school. I always loved learning. I'm someone who has always been curious about the world. I've always loved knowledge. When I was younger, um, I loved to watch history documentaries. I loved watching PBS here in the U.S., which is sort of equivalent to something like the BBC or any kind of public broadcasting that exists in other countries. I know that I have international listeners who might not understand what PBS is, but it's a free channel. It's like a public service that has all kinds of, you know, documentaries and cooking shows and craft shows and all kinds of stuff. And school was just, it shaped me and it was important to me. And the things that I learned each day mattered to me. And I loved learning. I remember learning about the Holocaust when I was like in fifth grade and I became incredibly obsessed with it and very interested in genocide and in human rights and in the horror that has been unleashed in the world in the past and in the present. I remember, you know, in high school, the books that we read like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Shakespeare's Hamlet, that is still my favorite uh, of Shakespeare or Romeo and Juliet, right? I remember loving The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. I still think it's a beautifully written novel. I remember we read an essay by Annie Dillard, and that made, I fell in love with Annie Dillard. I remember watching Dead Poets Society in one of my, one of my English classes, and that was like, that became one of my favorite films for a long time. I still love it. I have an episode about it. I just loved school dearly. Uh, just, so much. I remember every time, you know, a new school year would start, I loved going and getting the school supplies. 
I loved getting, you know, highlighters and markers and folders and notebooks. Like, to me, that was heaven. Going and buying school supplies. <laughs> like, I just loved it. I loved being in a classroom. I was so open to the to learning. I just devoured it. It's like I never understood why other people didn't like school. I just didn't get it. It's like, oh my god, we get to sit here. We get to read books because... I was a voracious reader from a very early age and my background is in literature. When I went to college, I studied English literature. So I've loved books from an early age. I've written from an early age and I think my love of reading, my parents instilled that in me from the time I was probably, you know, four or five. A deep, deep love of books. I loved going to the library and I think that made it easier for me in school. Because here in the U.S., a lot of what school is is like book-based. And some some kids don't learn well that way. They don't learn well reading. They want to do hands-on activities and things like that. But that was always my weakness was when we would do the experiments and stuff. I much preferred book learning. I was always better at that. And I thrived in school. I made pretty much straight A's the entire time I was in school. When I was in high school, I was inducted into the Beta Club, which is like an honor society. When I went to college, I was inducted into the Phi Beta Kappa Society. And when I graduated, I graduated magna cum laude. So I graduated with honors and I just loved learning. And school was never hard for me. It was something that I did not have to really work at or struggle at. I just always made A's for the most part. And I did, I did well throughout of it, throughout it. I'm proud of that. You know, I'm, I'm proud of, I don't, have a lot of like accomplishments in my life. So forgive me if I come off like full of myself naming off these honor societies, but it's like all I have. (laughs) Like I don't have lots of success in my life or accolades or anything like that, you know. It's like these are some of the only like objective things that I can point to and say, oh, I was an intelligent person. You know, I I had some kind of like honors or some kind of uh, accomplishment in the world, right? It hasn't really gotten me far. It's not like I have some amazing career or anything like that. I'm in a lot of debt, like most of you probably, for college. And I don't know if I'll ever be able to pay it back. You know, because the jobs that I, that you find are often not commensurate to the money that you've put into this degree. What I want to say is like, for me, school was just the safe place. It was where I had a sense of identity. And that's also something that I love about this film is that it shows that. It, it shows children experiencing these things. Someone had a really interesting interpretation of To Be and To Have that uh, Philly Bear uh, talked about in an interview. He said that that um, during a Q&A after a showing of To Be and To Have, somebody stood up. Philly Bear says, quote, I always said that the real subject and theme of that film is about how we grow up and about how we learn to behave in society. Then one day a lady stood up in the audience and said, you must realize that your film is about separation, about learning to separate. And when I thought about it, it was absolutely clear. It's the whole point of the film. It's the thing that is at the beginning and at the end and that sits right at the very heart of the story. To grow up is to experience separation. 
I knew it without knowing it. Sometimes nobody is more surprised by a film than the person who made it, unquote. And I love how that illustrates how a film can mean different things to different people. You know, for Philly Bear, the film was about one thing, he thought. And then here's this woman saying, no, it's really about separation. And I wanted to talk about how, for me, that was such a hard thing about school. And it's something that you see in the film, too, especially at the end, when he's going to retire. We're not sure if he's about to retire, like if this is his last year teaching ever. That wasn't totally clear to me. But at the end of the school year, you know, he's saying goodbye to some of these children, and he's not going to see them again. They're going off to other schools because the older kids are going to middle school. And that's hard for, I think, some of them to deal with is to separate from him. Or if you think about it, when a child goes to school, there is a separation that happens from their parents. There's a scene near the end of the film where these kids come in who are going to be at the school the next school year. And one of them is named Valentine. He's just this little boy and he starts to sob and, and call for his mother. He wants his mother and he won't stop crying. She's on the premises. She's probably touring the school or she's at another section of the school. And they tell him, you know, she'll be right back. And it reminded me of how I, when I went to kindergarten, I have a very intense memory that when my mom took me, I was sobbing. And I remember sitting in the kindergarten classroom that first day of school, and I was just crying and crying. And I was the only kid doing that. Like all these kids around me were like, what is she doing? You know, you, I, and I think I immediately felt that otherness that has sort of haunted me the rest of my life. And I feel like I felt that intense emotion that has also marked me for my entire life, that I always feel things in a deeper way and that I'm much more sensitive to the world than maybe some other people. You know, I'm not trying to say I'm some kind of special person or something. It's just who I am. I've always struggled with sensitivity and depression and anxiety and this hyper awareness of things, sort of this hyper emotion and feeling in my body. And I think that is a perfect illustration of like who I am. Like, of course, when my mom left, I was sobbing and sobbing. And I'm still extremely close to my mother, extremely close. And I think I'm unable to separate from her, honestly, that I could not separate in kindergarten. And that even now, you know, 25 years later, I'm still not able to fully separate myself from her. I live with her. My life is with her. Um, I've talked about that in some episodes. We just have a very deep bond. And I wanted to talk just a moment about my senior year of high school. I hope all of this starts to come together for you. I know I'm lingering a lot on my personal experiences, but this film brings those things up for me. And I hope that if you watch the film, maybe it will make you reflect on your experience in school and the way that the film connects with you, the different experiences that you've had. And so my senior year of high school was really difficult for me. It was in 2007. My father uh, died in 2006 when I was around 16 years old. His death was really devastating for me, and I've talked about it in countless episodes. I mean, his death recurs throughout everything that I do, honestly, everything that I write, everything that I talk about. He he is the source. The His death is the source because I just can't get over it. And I've never been able to cope with it. And it's been all these years later, you know, almost 13 years at this point. And it's still raw. 
It's still like it happened yesterday. It's still incomprehensible. I've never been the same since it happened. Just the 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 darkness that came into me when it happened. The way that it traumatized me. What it did to my mind. What it did to my body. What it did to my life. What it did to my mother. There is no coming back from it in my opinion. And so I also think that films about children or about childhood, like that for me, that time before he died when I was a child, that's my Eden. That's my paradise. I am obsessed with my childhood. I worship my childhood. I've said that before too. It was the time when I was safe, when I was happy, before I knew death before I knew this kind of depression that will completely eat you alive, because that's what I have now. I always had anxiety and depression, even when I was a child, even when my father was alive. But when he died, it was like it never ended. I I don't know if I'm ever not depressed at this point, (laughs) if I'm being honest. You know, I think some people have uh, like episodes of depression and they'll go away and then they'll sort of go back to normal or feel some sense of normalcy. I would say more that my normal is depression and it's punctuated by periods of maybe not being so depressed. But I think that I am basically always in a state of depression at this point. Always dealing with anxiety. It, It just doesn't go away. Here in the United States, if you don't have health insurance, then you have no access to any kind of help, any kind of therapy. So that hasn't been part of my life, really, (laughs) except for a brief period when I was in college and had some insurance. Um, I've pretty much just had to cope and, and, and deal with it the best way that I can. You know, when he died, I was finishing out my junior year of high school. He died in May of 2006, and then... I had to go back in and I had to do some exams. That was brutal. You know, after my father's died and I've seen him in a casket and I've buried him, I have to go into a classroom and answer questions on an exam. And the summer came and then I went back to school my senior year that fall. And I was in so much pain and I seriously thought about dropping out. I was going to drop out. I felt like I could not do it. I just couldn't do it. I was in so much pain and I was so alone. My mom and I just had each other. We didn't have family because they decided to treat us terribly. (laughs) You know, you would think that when your father dies, people are going to be supportive and loving and kind. I'm still so angry. I'm still so angry that I was a 16-year-old girl whose father died. And instead of people being loving and kind to me. They were horrible or they just didn't care. I'll never get over it. Like it still hurts so badly. And you think about the way your life could have gone. Like, God, what if I'd had support? What if people had really been there for me when I needed someone? That's why when I look at these children in this film, I'm just like, God, they're so fragile. And you know what is coming for them in the world, you know? Like, they're safe in this classroom, and there's this part of you that just wants to keep them in that that cocoon, you know, in that safe little environment where nothing can hurt them and nothing can touch them. I just don't want them to lose their innocence. But you know that they're going to. You know it. You know that the world is harsh. Philly Bear shows that. 
at times. He shows like the cows in the snow, right? He shows the outside world through the landscapes and he shows nature and the snow and all of that. So there are these things that can come into there that, you know, that there is this vast, chaotic, uncontrollable world outside the windows of this school. But I guess for that little time that they're in the school, they're safe. But um, my senior year of high school was really hard. I thought about dropping out. I was so alone. I didn't have friends. I was angry. I guess I'm still angry. It's hard for me to admit that because I didn't used to be an angry person. But it's like when people hurt you and abandon you and treat you like you're nothing. You know, the people who are supposed to care about you, your own family, and they don't. Or maybe people that you thought were your friends. It's like I still don't understand why people don't care about me. They just don't. And it's something that started in school. I loved school. I loved the the school work. I loved learning. I hated the social part of it. I absolutely despised it. I had so much trouble communicating with people, talking to people. I was deeply shy, deeply anxious, and introverted. It was always impossible for me to make friends. It was impossible for me to speak in class and give presentations without just feeling like I was going to faint because my anxiety was so bad. School was a contradiction for me. I loved learning, but I hated the social part of it. And the social part could be really brutal. I mean, I remember one year I had a lot of absences and I got kind of like in trouble for it. And then when my dad got sick when I was around 13, and then he died when I was 16, that period from 13 to 16 was really hard. And I was really struggling, you know, because I was alone and watching my dad struggle. And that's why I related a lot to the different kids in this documentary. But my senior year of high school... I'll talk about those kids in in a little bit. I want to go back to that woman. God, I veered so much. That woman that talked about how the film is about separation. That was a big issue for me when I was in school. I remember that senior year. And I remember my English class in particular. I I was in an AP, Advanced Placement English class. And it was a good class for the most part. We read... Frankenstein. We read Hamlet. We read uh, all kinds of different books that I really enjoyed. So that was a good literature class. And I remember just uh, this feeling. I have this very distinct memory of that class. You know, I had this feeling that all of us were here together at this one time and we never would be again. The teacher, the students that I'd known for 12 years, because this was my senior year. You know, this was my last year of high school. I was never going to have this again. And I was extremely aware of it, of the how momentous it was. You know, these kids that I had known for 12 years, basically, some of them since kindergarten, I, I knew them, but I didn't really know them. And we were really on the precipice of lives that we, we didn't know what was going to happen to us. And I knew that I would miss it. I knew that I would miss this class, that I would miss this world. I would miss this campus. And I was already starting to mourn it and grieve it even before I graduated. And I remember we took this class photo, the AP English class. And it was sort of a smaller class too. I don't think there were like a ton of students in it. And we took this photo and I was just so sad when I just remember us all standing there taking this photo. And, you know, I I was sad about everything coming to an end. I was 
in despair about the future. I just could not see a life for myself the way that they could. You know, I didn't have that hope or that optimism after everything that I had suffered. I just couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. But I remember us taking that class photo and I just remember being in that classroom. I remember being with those kids and I can remember the layout of all of the schools that I went through, I, I re, that I went to, um, the kindergarten that I went to, the middle school, the high school. I still remember certain rooms. I still remember the, some of the layout, what the cafeteria looked like, what the outdoor area, you know, when you went to recess, what it looked like. You know, I remember certain moments and conversations and, and interactions, and I felt like I was probably the only person <laughs> who was mourning this senior year and, you know, scared of the future. And, you know, it's just an example of my sensitivity. My sensitivity has always been a liability. Always. It, it's just always made it hard for me to be in the world. You know, other people are not looking at a tree or a bird the way that I am. They're not having this class photo taken and feeling all of these things the way that I am, this grief about it. I don't think that that's what they were feeling. Like I could identify the moment, you know, I could understand that this was, this was going to be the last time that we were all together, you know, and I mourned that in a way because of what I had been through. So school just always meant so much to me. And you know, if I was another kind of person, if I didn't have this depression and this really debilitating anxiety, I probably would have been a teacher. You know, uh, Lopez, uh, Mr. Lopez, when he's talking about why he became a teacher in the film, he says that it's because he loved school. He loved being in school, loved the being in the classroom. He talks about how his father was an immigrant and how he was uh, of Spanish descent. I think that's the way he describes it. I don't know if that means his father was from Spain. I'm not sure. But his father was an immigrant in France. And that being a teacher was sort of a step up. And that his parents were proud that he became a teacher. But him becoming that came from his own love of school and just the way I guess that it made him feel when he was a child and I thought that was really beautiful and I think that comes off with Mr. Lopez you can tell that he loves children the way that Mr. Rogers loved children you know that he wanted he wants to nurture them he wants to help them he's so patient and kind so I think if I was a different person, I probably would have been a teacher. You know, if I was outgoing and if I was capable, you know, I, I would have done that. You know, if I wasn't so painfully shy and introverted and anxious. You know, I always wanted to affect other people the way that the best teachers that I had affected me. I had several teachers that were just so important in my life that, you know, I can't even imagine who I would be today without them. And one of them was my eighth grade teacher. And that year we kept a journal. We had to like turn it in for the teacher to read. And I think I had written some poems or something like that. And um, I still remember he talked to each student about their journal. Like you would go and you would sit beside him at his desk and he would talk about, uh, he would just talk to you about what you had written, I guess, or something. 
And I still remember um, he said that he was really impressed with my writing. And in that, that was the same teacher where we had to do this project at the end of the year. We had to write this like really long paper. And I remember that I chose Emily Dickinson as my subject because I just loved Emily Dickinson. And I still remember, I don't have the paper anymore, but when he handed them back, I remember this comment that he put on it. And he said he was really impressed with my writing. And he said that I had the gift I think he put the gift in quotation marks. I still remember him writing that. He said, you have the gift. And it was the first time in my life up to that point where I thought of myself as a writer or thought that I had the capability to become a writer. I just had never thought of myself in that way or attached that label to myself. And so for him to say that and write that, it's like I still remember like this tingling in my chest. How I guess like... I felt seen, like I felt like somebody saw something special in me, like I mattered in some way, or I guess it gave me this sense of of, uh, identity, and it was the first time I'd ever felt that in my life. I mean, it literally changed my life after that. Like, I started to think of myself as a writer. I started to think that maybe this is who I was. Maybe I was a writer and I had this gift or, or something. I mean, when I think about it now, it's absurd. I mean, I'm I'm not a writer. <laughs> I think maybe it's like I, I think I, I took hold of that because I needed something to hold on to that I didn't have this this identity at all I didn't have any I didn't understand myself or know who I was I was just this really shy lonely dreamy (laughs) teenage girl I don't know if I would have been a teenager in eighth grade I would have been a preteen I think and so I think thinking of myself as a writer sort of gave me some kind of identity. I mean, when I go back and read some of what I wrote, you know, as a as a teenager, I don't think it's very good at all. I don't feel like a writer anymore. I don't think I have that in me. I thought at one time that I did, but I just don't know if I still do anymore. I find myself, you know, with the death of my father, it's like, I feel like I just lost language. I lost it. It's like, I think sometimes you go through things that are just unspeakable and incomprehensible. I I can't find language anymore. I I think I used to find comfort in it. I used to find solace in it. And somewhere along the way, I lost that. It's like, maybe I'm just too devastated or something. I, I can't find the words anymore. I feel like his death took away language. It took away words. It's like just this silence that has engulfed me that I don't know what to say about it or how to talk about it or I feel like there's so much in me that I can't articulate. All these feelings just churning and churning. All these just ineffable, unspeakable things of what I saw and what I felt when he died. The way that it completely obliterated me. And so I think I lost the ability to write. I think I lost so much. But he was the first teacher to, I guess, bring that to my attention that maybe I had something to offer the world. And that was a really powerful thing for someone to see you and to say to you, you have something to contribute. You have something special. You have a gift, right? I mean, how can you not be electrified by that, you know, for someone to say that about you, even if it's maybe in the end not really true? But I think I needed it at that time. 
and it did change my life. It did. And then I had a really great teacher who did film a film appreciation class that I took in high school in 2004. And that's where I really started to see uh, film and cinema as an art form. And that class was so pivotal and so formative for me and really sowed the seeds for me to become a cinephile. We saw a lot of Alfred Hitchcock. We saw Singing in the Rain. We watched some silent films and learned about silent cinema. We watched Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. It was mainly American cinema. I think we watched Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. We watched some Frank Capra. We watched some Billy Wilder. I know that we watched some Like It Hot, which I still love to this day. (laughs) We watched a lot of classic American cinema, and that was such an amazing class. And she also taught a course on the Holocaust. And that was a huge interest of mine, as you know. I, you know, I became obsessed when I was 10, and I learned more about the Holocaust, and that continues to be a big, important interest of mine. And so she, she was another teacher who was very um, supportive of my writing and who told me when I wrote like essays or term papers that I was a good writer. I think at one point she said I was like the best uh, the best writer she had come across in any of her students or one of the best. And I didn't quite know how to handle that. <laughs> I had some, I had a few college teachers who said the same thing, that my writing really impressed them. But I would say those two teachers were the most uh, pivotal for me. You know, the one in eighth grade and then the one in high school where we did film appreciation and then a class about the Holocaust. Those were teachers. And then I had other English teachers throughout the years who were definitely supportive and encouraged me as a writer and stuff like that. So I I love how this film looks at teachers and looks at Lopez's relationship with these students. Because I think that there's something very sacred and beautiful between teachers and, and children that... I don't, I've never felt like we valued teachers enough in our society. I don't know how it is in France. I I get the sense that they're probably underappreciated too. But here in the United States, I think they are deeply underappreciated. You know, I absolutely like worshipped my teachers, (laughs) honestly, like all throughout my life in, in school, including college. I had, I revered them and admired them and I've just always had immense respect for them. And I love how in this rural setting, Lopez is able to have this personal connection with the students. He only has about a dozen students, maybe a little bit more. I don't know the exact number. And so he's able to give each of them this personal instruction. And we see over and over again in the film how he talks to them individually. He'll have discussions with them and conversations with them. He teaches them. Every moment he's with them is like an opportunity for him to teach them something. Like when Jojo gets the paint on his hands and he tells him to go wash. Go wash your hands. You know, it's important for you to do that. Or there's another scene where Jojo's coloring. He's coloring this. Can I just say Jojo, I think, was my favorite. Jojo is adorable in this film, but I love all of them. And Marie is wonderful. Natalie. I loved all the kids, but Jojo is so sweet, isn't he? And he's coloring a picture, and he hasn't finished it. And Mr. Lopez is like, you you need to finish this picture. If you say that you're going to do something and you're going to finish it, then that's what you should do. So he's always trying to instill life lessons in the children. Unfortunately, here in the United States, for a lot of schools, 
that kind of personal instruction is not there. Some schools may have 30 students in a classroom. I mean, I don't know exactly where it stands now, but a lot of schools are overcrowded. And so you don't, kids are not maybe getting that personal instruction unless they're going to like a private school. I love watching films like this as an adult. I, I would imagine that if you're a kid watching To Be and To Have, it's very different. Say, say you saw it as a teenager. I don't know. Uh, there could be people that saw this film as a teenager. But I think it's very different from the vantage point of an adult. As I was watching the film, it really made me think about how school is like this completely unique and unreplicable time in our lives. It's this time where we are solely dedicated to learning. Learning to read and write, learning about history and science and math. There's no other time in our life when we have this free time, all this time to just learn. Because think about it, when you graduate, when you start work, when you have to become an adult and deal with capitalism, right? You very rarely have free time. You very rarely get to read and get to engage in leisure and in things you want to do. But with school, it's like it's like just totally dedicated to learning. There's just no other time in our life that's like that. Unless maybe some people who have retired, who actually get to retire. <laughs> My generation won't be able to retire ever, will we, um, us millennials. So at that age, we're just absorbing everything. And it's really fascinating to watch a film like this as an adult and to remember what it was like to be a child. You know, the pressure that you felt with tests and exams and quizzes, how difficult it was learning to do something that you knew nothing about, but also the wonder that came with it and the sense of accomplishment when you did get it you know, when you did learn something. I love that sense of wonder about children. I love, I love how they are learning every single day that things that you take for granted are so new to them. Everything's new to them. They're so porous, you know, children. And I don't think I'll ever have children. It's not something that I've ever wanted, but I think that would be a really beautiful thing if you had a kid and you got to see them discover the world. And it would almost be like you'd be able to rediscover it through them. I think that would be a beautiful thing. Or I think if I had a kid, what I would want to do is teach them. You know, I'd want to read poetry to them. I'd want to play classical music for them. I'd want to show them all the films that I love and all the music and the books and, and teach them about the world and teach them, you know, leftist politics. And, you know, I think that's something that I would want to do is like mold this little child and expose them to all the beautiful things that affected me as a child, all the things that formed me, all the great writers and poets and filmmakers and I think that would be great and watch history documentaries I'd be the most boring parent I'd be like okay let's watch PBS <laughs> I would just be watching PBS with my kid <laughs> oh something I really noticed about this film was the lack of computers they do have computers at the school but Philly Bear Philly Bear said um that he didn't like filming the kids on them, that it was very boring. Um, you know, nowadays it's all about laptops and cell phones. So this film is also a document, a portrait of school life before technology, before cell phones and computers, when you still have that hands-on learning. You know, learning as something that is not done on a screen but through talking and touching and performing. And it's an active thing rather than a passive thing. 
and that was beautiful to see. It's a beautiful reminder. Maybe that's why I'm why I'm nostalgic for my childhood as well as was a time I mean, we had a computer lab of course when I was in school and you had computer time. Like once a week you would go to the computer lab. But computers and cell phones and all that were not ubiquitous, you know, not at all when I was a kid. Whereas nowadays they are. But I've I've heard that kids are starting to resist some of that. That uh, I read this story about Mark Zuckerberg that he has some kind of company that tries to do online learning and they've tried to take it into some high schools where it's like it's like all based on your laptop or computer and it just that dominates it really it's much it's all online learning rather than a a teacher in person and they said that kids have walked out they have staged these protests Because they don't like the program. If I find the article, I'll put it in the show notes. And that parents have been protesting it too. That they do not like learning on a screen. That they want to have a teacher. They want to have that real real life interaction. So I do think there are some people uh, resisting it. You know, and, and protesting this obsession with technology and this focus on online learning, I still think it's better to learn in a classroom. And I think that's very important, especially for young children. And so this film shows that. It's not kids on screens. It's kids coloring and painting and out in nature, talking to one another and interacting with each other and talking face-to-face with their teacher and learning things. And I think that's really important. It's just fascinating to see these children really in the process of becoming. They're in the process of becoming themselves. There's something just so beautiful and poignant about it. And you remember yourself at that age, how tender you were, how malleable, how everything could hurt, right? You know, these intense feelings and emotions. And you see that come out with some of these kids. Sometimes they'll get in fights. Like when Johan pushes Jojo down to the ground and Jojo just starts crying. He is so upset about it. They're very emotional at that age, children. But then even with the older boys, like there's Olivier and Julian, there's that scene where Lopez is talking to them and he asks Olivier, you know, why did you attack Julian? You know, why don't you like Julian? And then, um... I think Olivier says that Julian insulted him. And Lopez talks about how, you know, words can be really damaging and they can really hurt people. And he's trying to teach them to be kinder to each other. So, and and Olivier in the whole scene is on the verge of tears. Or maybe he does cry. You just remember how sensitive you were at that age. It's like so intense. But it also shows how this is not a utopia. You know, the kids do fight. They do cry. They get aggressive. They have difficulties, right? You know, this is not some kind of perfect school with perfect children who obey 100% of the time. They get frustrated. They make mistakes. They hurt one another. But they apologize to each other. And they work through their issues and their troubles. I love how this film showed rural life. And it showed working class life. Nowadays... A lot of people probably go to city schools. A lot of people, um, you know, a lot of the population is living in cities. And I'm sure the same, I'm sure it's the same in France where people are becoming much more urban. And rural life here in the United States has pretty much uh, been demolished in a lot of ways. It's not easy to live in rural areas 
there are fewer hospitals. Um, there's fewer activities. There few, there's fewer access to stuff in rural areas. I know because I, I live in rural America. That's where I come from, where I live still. It makes me really sad. You know, I think that we're losing something when we don't invest in the rural life of people. You know, cities are fine. I just don't think everybody should be forced to live in them. It's not where everybody is happy. I personally am very attached to the countryside. And I consider myself a country girl, a southern girl. And I'm very attached to this land that I have lived on. I'm originally from North Carolina. I don't live there now. I live in another state, but I'm still in the South. And I'm very attached to this region you know, for better or worse, for all the complexities of it. This is my home. And politically, it's difficult. Everything about the South is difficult at times, especially if you are uh, an an atheist, leftist, (laughs) feminist, the way I am. It's not an easy place to live, but I'm really insulted when people just act like you can just leave. That I, like everybody has the option to just leave. That if I don't like something, I can just go. That's not how it works in life. This is where I live. This is my home. This is where I am. And for me, it's worth fighting for. It's worth being here because I do love it. I love the rural. It's complex for me. It's a contradiction for me that this place can be really conservative and really religious and really backwards in some ways. But this is also where my home is, you know, and my roots are and where I feel more like myself with the trees and the forests and the big sky above me and it's just home to me. It's hard to explain that to people who don't understand it or who have not been raised in a rural setting or grown up in the countryside. It's something deeply in your marrow and I've realized that about myself that when I didn't live in the south I felt dead inside. You know that this is this is my culture for better or worse and so I like films that are about the rural and this film is. And you see the children. I love that these children were working class. These kids did not go into that school wearing like American Eagle or whatever the trendy brands are nowadays. I don't know. But back in 2001, it probably would have been like American Eagle and stuff like that. That's not how these kids looked. You know, they they wore just everyday ordinary clothes. They weren't, you know, all decked out in like the best clothes or anything like that. You can tell they're from a working class background. And we got to see some of the kids with their families. We got to see Julian with his family. Um, he lives on a farm. I think his parents had cows. We see several of these kids in their home environment. And I love, I just loved seeing that because I don't think that gets enough attention. People who live in the countryside and what life is like. I, I think people like that get looked down on, you know, I think they get seen as old fashioned and backwards. And are there elements of that in the South? Yes. But that's not 100% everybody that lives in the South. You know, we have got to let go of these generalizations that every single person who lives in the South, you know, supports Donald Trump and drapes a Confederate flag over their house. That is not the reality for every person that lives in the South. It's just not. There are people like me in this region. There is a huge history of African-American activism in the South that people don't talk about. There is a liberal leftist 
you know, heritage and tradition in the South. So let's not forget that. There are all kinds of people living in this region. It is a large part of the country with millions of people. And not all of us are the same. (laughs) You know, there are some of us who, there's not enough of us like that, but we do exist. And I would imagine that there could be stereotypes like that in France about people who live in the country or, you know, certain, uh, certain backgrounds that they may come from, like a working class background. I don't know for sure, but I would imagine that there's something similar in France the way there is here in the U.S. There is very little representation of working class life here in the United States. Very few shows or movies about it. You know, I think of like a lot of representations of millennials. It's all about people who live in Brooklyn or Portland or San Francisco. And that's not who I am. You know, I live in the country. I don't fit any of those stereotypes, you know, of hipsters or millennials. I wish there was a more complex, diverse representation of people my age, perhaps, you know, who live in the country, live in the rural South. I want to end by talking about a few scenes that really moved me. The first was the scene with Olivier where Lopez is talking to him about his father. Apparently, what I um, assumed from this was that uh, Olivier's father has cancer in his larynx because Olivier says that his father must have been in the hospital or something and now he's home for a little while, but he's going to have to go back into the hospital to have his larynx removed. And when he's telling Mr. Lopez about this, he starts to cry. He gets really emotional and... I just was bawling. This film made me cry so much because there was, there were several kids in this film who just deeply moved me and kids that I really related to from my own experiences. And Olivier was one of them because of his, um, because of his father, because my father had health issues and he started to get sick when I was around 13 years old. And then he died just a few years later when I was 16. And so that hit home for me. Like Olivier looked like he might have been my age. He might have been like 13 or 14. And I think when you see a parent struggling, when you see a parent who's sick and you're that young, you don't know how to handle it. You don't know what to do. And so when I just felt Olivier's pain and his sensitivity and how isolated he must feel seeing a parent who is ill. I mean, how can anybody really understand? It's not a normal experience. It's actually not normal to lose your parents when you're a teenager or to lose a parent. Like, it's actually pretty rare. You know, it doesn't happen to all teenagers or something. And so when you know, my experience of a parent dying, it's a very unique experience. It's not a universal thing, and it can make you feel very alone and very isolated. That was something that I struggled with, was that isolation. You know, there's a part of me that wishes I could help other teenagers who might have lost a parent, because I know that it's just devastating, and I know how alone I felt, and then to see Olivier dealing with his dad's cancer or his illness, I could really relate to that, because when my dad was sick, it's so heavy. You know, when you're a kid, you're supposed to be able to be carefree, and you're not supposed to be thinking about mortality and death and these really heavy, incomprehensible things. And I think when you're plunged into that, you don't know what to do, and people can't relate to it, and you don't know how to talk about it. There is no one to talk to about it, because your peers are not going to be able to understand what you're going through. 
And so I felt Olivier's emotion and I felt his pain really in that moment. And then another scene that really moved me in this film was Natalie, was when Mr. Lopez talks to the older girl, Natalie, who has trouble talking to people. She's very shy. She's very introverted. And for me, that was, that is the central, one of the central struggles of my life besides grief and mental illness and, you know, my depression and anxiety. The central struggle of my life has been communication and connection with other people and social stuff. That my social anxiety from an early age has just always been so intense And it's just made it almost impossible for me to make friends or to make connections in the world. And I don't know what to do. You know, it's just one of those things that's haunted me since I was a child. I could see that in Natalie. That you could tell there's so much in Natalie. And I saw myself in her. That there's so many emotions, I bet, and feelings and thoughts. And so much that I bet she wants to be able to say and express to other people. But she simply can't. Mr. Lopez was very supportive of Olivier. Trying to make him feel better. You know, that things will get better. Things will be okay. And he's very much the same with Natalie. And he can he can see that she's struggling. He can see that she is unable to communicate. He tells her that he's told her future teachers that she has trouble with that. And so that they can look out for her. And I thought this was a sweet thing for him to do. You know, for him to just give these teachers a heads up that Natalie struggles with that. She has a hard time communicating and talking. Be careful with her. <laughs> And I think that was a way for him to show tenderness towards Natalie and to show that he was looking out for her. And she starts to cry while they're talking and she's very non-communicative for the most part in this scene. He he asks her some questions and he says that they have to say goodbye to each other and he wonders if that's why she's emotional. She doesn't answer. Um, he asks her a few things and she, she just doesn't answer much. She might have uh, responded a bit but it was hard to hear her answers. And he tells her things will get better and I thought it was really kind of him when he told her that she could come back and see him Because the next year she's going to be at middle school. She's not going to have Mr. Lopez as her teacher anymore. He says that she can come back on Saturdays and she can see him and tell him what's going on at middle school and everything like that. And I just thought that was an incredibly kind offer to her to say to Natalie, you know, even though you're going to this middle school, it doesn't mean that our relationship is severed. It doesn't mean that now that I'm not your teacher, you can't come and talk to me or, you know, we can't be friends. And I was like, oh my God, I just thought that was so beautiful. Because, I mean, how many times do you really see that? To see a person go to that length for someone to say, you know, I'm here for you. You know, he could have just kept it as teacher-student. You know, well, I'm not going to be your teacher anymore. So you're going to have to, you're going to have to go to those teachers. You're going to have to make friends. He leaves it on the table that she could still come back to see him if she's struggling or, or maybe if she doesn't make friends or she does, she's not able to communicate and just the tenderness of that and the kindness. It's just so special for him, for him to do that. I think to say, you know, we can still talk to each other. We can still be friends. And how many kids you know, wish that they had that, that they wish they had an adult or they had someone that they trusted that they could open up to. It's such a beautiful thing. You wish that every child had that. I mean, you really wish that we lived in a world that valued children because I don't believe that we do. I really don't believe we value children. 
if we valued children, we wouldn't allow these school shootings to keep happening. There would be real legislative changes. If we valued children, we wouldn't allow millions of them to live in poverty. If we valued children, we would confront sexual abuse against them and the horrific things that are done to children in this country because that's sort of an unspoken thing and it's incredibly devastating. If we valued children, we'd have universal health care for all of them, wouldn't we? And no child would go hungry and no child would be homeless and um, we would have a a country that looked after the safety and, and the well-being of every single person in this country. And we don't have that because I don't think we do value life and I don't think we value children's lives. There's a lot of kids that fall through the cracks. A lot of kids with mental health issues or a lot of kids going to schools that are not properly funded where they don't have the books they need and the supplies that they need. There's so much broken in our country and so many children are are shortchanged by it because we just live in an inhumane country i truly believe that that the political policies in this country are barbaric and inhumane for the most part you just wonder what it would be like if every child had this kind of specialized instruction had this personal connection to their teacher had this real relationship with a with a, an adult and could learn in a in a classroom that's safe and loving and nurturing and supportive. You just wonder what that's like. I think it's a world that Mr. Rogers wanted to bring into being as well. Like, what if we had a world that truly valued children and loved them just the way they were? And he was just all about affirming the worth of every child, that every child should feel loved, every child should feel worthy, that every child should feel like they are enough. And I felt like the kids in Mr. Lopez's classroom, I felt like that's what he was modeling, was that kind of viewpoint that every child in this classroom matters. Every child in this classroom has worth. Every child is enough. And I think Mr. Lopez made them feel that way. And I wonder about these kids now, because they're probably in their 20s by now, I would think. I couldn't find anything online about where they are now or anything about their lives. And I wonder if they look back on their time with Mr. Lopez and their memories with him. And I wonder if they long for it the way that I long for school, you know, my own childhood before everything imploded and everything was shattered. You know, I wonder if they think back to their time at that little schoolhouse with Mr. Lopez and, and long for it. And I hope that they did feel loved. I hope that for the time that they were with Mr. Lopez, they felt that love and care that he gave them. Because you you just feel it in that in the documentary that he cared deeply about those children. And yes, some of the stuff after the documentary has not been great. You know, suing the filmmaker like Lopez did and also the children's parents did. Sometimes these things don't bring out the best in people. But I still think Mr. Lopez was a good teacher. And what we see of him in the documentary is quite beautiful. You know, and he has a lot of integrity, I think. And I tell you, the final scene where they're all saying goodbye to him. Oh, my Lord. That was... It was too much. It was too much. The school year has come to an end. And this really will be the last time that he sees several of the kids because they're going off to the middle school, right? And like I said before, I couldn't figure out if he was retiring or not. 
So I don't know if this was like his last day ever teaching, you know, his last days with kids, period, or if it was just the last day that he was going to see some of the older kids. But all of them are kissing him on the cheek, you know, the way the French are. They kiss each other on the cheeks. You can tell that they just adore him. You can feel the adoration. You can tell that after they leave, he is extremely emotional, that he feels it too. He's going to miss these kids. You can just feel the emotion of it. And that's how I felt my last day of school. You know, that last day of senior year. I had already been mourning it for a while. And then the day came. And I think the whole time during senior year, those last few days or weeks, I think I was trying to have some kind of photographic memory. And I was trying to just remember everything. You know, remember the cafeteria. Remember this classroom. Remember this library. And in my mind, even now, sometimes when I'm sad or depressed or scared or, you know, just longing for my childhood, longing for that time in my life that was, for the most part, really good, you know, and really safe and and lovely. And, you know, in my mind, I'll go back to my school. I'll go back and I'll think about the hallways and the classrooms and my memories and my experiences and sort of walk through in my mind the spaces, you know, those those hallways and those rooms and remember as much as I can for as long as I can because it mattered to me and it meant something to me to be in in those classrooms those classrooms changed me you know they made me who I am they made me curious they led to so many discoveries you know when I would write things and get positive feedback from teachers those were the few few times in my life when I felt appreciated or I felt liked I felt that sense of being liked um, which is so rare for me or I felt valued or I felt seen in some way or felt like I mattered felt like I was somebody you know I don't get to have that really anymore I don't get to feel that way on a daily basis like I matter and like I'm somebody in the world (laughs) and so I kind of cling to those memories from my childhood when I did feel like I was someone or I felt appreciated and felt like somebody cared about me (laughs) because it's not something that I get to feel too often anymore so school was just I miss it you know I miss it like desperately and it's kind of hard for me to cope with the fact that it's over and done and gone and that I'll never have that again that my my childhood's gone my childhood's over I feel like I'm like in perpetual mourning over it you know that here was this time when everything was really good and it'll never be like that again you can't go backwards you can only go forward you know those kids in the film they're grown up now They're having to navigate the world. They're not in that little schoolroom anymore. They're not safe and they're not innocent. But in the documentary, they're sort of forever preserved at that age and with those experiences. It evokes a lot for me. I know that I lingered a lot on my own experiences, but school meant a lot for me. And when it ended, it it felt like this kind of stability in my life. That's what school was. It's like, you know, it started at the same time every year, ended at the same time. You went in, you left at the same time every day. It creates structure and stability in your life. And when it came to an end, I hate endings. I'm so bad at them. And I was even worse at, uh, 
when it came to school that you spend this entire year with a teacher and it's like you become this little family and that's what they kind of became into being to have they became like this family in this schoolroom, right and that's what you see in the film you see the rhythms of the class and the dynamics and then it ends and this whole new year begins new classes different teachers different students so school school creates that stability but it also brings separation and ending every year things change and there's that uh impermanence and that constant change and i've just never been able to cope with change and impermanence like ever I, like when I was in some of those classes, I just wanted them to last forever. Like when I was in that film appreciation class, I didn't want it to end. I wish it had never ended. Like I wish I could still walk in there and, and experience it. But the only way that I can experience it is through my memories. And it's just so painful. It just, it's like a deep loss for me. Like I'm realizing that. Like when school ended, it was like this huge loss. It's like, it's like I had an identity when I was in school. I was smart. I, I was the writer. I had this identity, this structure. I was really good at it. I mean, there are some people that go through school and they hate it. Like when my mom talks about her school day, she hated school. She was a free spirit, <laughs> my mom. She's so the opposite of me, y'all. The complete opposite of me. She's so outgoing, so funny, just a spectacular personality. So lovable, impossible to not love her. And here I am, I'm, I'm morose and melancholic and... <laughs> you know, introverted. And so for her, she couldn't wait to get out of school. For me, I loved school. I was good at it. It gave me a sense of pride, my grade. When I would get those straight A's, when I was in beta club, when I was was on honor roll every year. And then in college, when I was on the dean's list and the chancellor's list and in Phi Beta Kappa, I felt a sense of pride about that. Like, oh, I'm good at this. I'm smart. I think I had... I think I had built up my entire identity around this idea that I was smart. I was good at school. But school isn't a job. And it ends. And you have to be able to be in the world. And when you go into the workplace, it doesn't matter the kind of grades that you got in school. That doesn't matter. The Beta Club and Phi Beta Kappa do not matter at work. (laughs) Uh, When you try to get a job, it's like for these 12 years you live one way. You know, you live in a way that is about knowledge and learning. And then once you become an adult and you go into the workplace, you're basically a number. You're a machine. You're completely dehumanized in certain jobs, especially working class jobs. I mean, maybe if you're in a white collar or an office setting, people care about you or, oh, you know, they do birthday parties. But when you go into these working class jobs, retails, the service industry, your boss doesn't care about you. There, there are difficult, mind-numbing, physically draining jobs where you're not seen as a human being. The capitalism just dehumanizes all of us, right? We're just a number. We're just whatever. Our lives don't matter anymore. And it's an abrupt shift from being in a classroom where a teacher cares about you and you're learning and and you have time to to learn and to read and to just live this certain life and you're making good grades and you're good at something and you have this identity and sense of self and sense of pride and then you graduate and you go out into the workforce you go out into the world and it's like none of it matters 
Everything you did for 12 years does not matter once you're in that workplace. It's been hard for me to adjust to personally. And I do feel like I've lost this sense of myself. Like, oh, I don't have grades anymore. Like, oh, my grades don't matter. And nothing I did in high school or school matters anymore. I'm nobody. <laughs> oh, here, here was something I was good at. And now it's over. All of it's over. And you have to learn how to be an adult. That's not easy. I still don't have the answer of how the hell to navigate this world and survive this world as as a sensitive person, as a tender person, as someone who cares. Like, how do you not numb that part of yourself? How do you hold on to the child within you, the child that you were? Because I try to protect that. How do you hold on to that wonder and that awe and that vulnerability and that openness and that curiosity? How do you do that? In a world that I think wants to crush that. So I think maybe a film like this, it reconnects us with that part of ourselves. It reminds us what we were like as children. It reminds us how sensitive and tender we were. I guess that's why I react to it the way I do. And why I get so dang emotional. And why it's just such a powerful, overwhelming film for me. Is that it brings up all these emotions and memories. And it brings up this time in my life that completely formed me. And made me who I am today. And yet that time in my life is so distant. And it's over. And it's lost. And it's gone. I ache for it. And I miss it. And I don't really know how to cope with not having it anymore. And so this film just brings up a lot for me. But... I think it's a really beautiful portrait of childhood, of of children learning, of children becoming themselves. It shows that these ordinary lives are important and that something as small as coloring or reading or doing a math problem, these are big things. These are important things in the lives of a, in the life of a child. It makes them into a person, <laughs> makes them into who they need to be to exist and survive in the world. You need to know math. You need to know how to read. These are very important things for you to exist and survive. And why don't we put enough importance on that? Why don't we have more films about that? Why is that seen as like not an important subject when it actually really is? And so there's something radical about this film that it is simple, but that simplicity is radical of looking at these lives, looking at this teacher with his students and saying, this is a monumental story here. This is an epic story of children learning to read and write and and learning numbers and that's a worthy subject for cinema and that can be a a work of art right that can be a masterpiece I, I just think this film is extraordinary and beautiful and really thankful for it and so in love with it and probably always will be so I've gone on long enough thanks so much for listening until next time keep watching great films bye for now <laughs>